land tax, stamp duty, tenants. Sure, property is great, but there are easier ways to get your passive income, sometimes with franking credits. Through ETFs or exchange-traded funds, you can buy a basket of shares in many different companies in one trade. BetaShares offers Australia's broadest range of ETFs, including income-focused funds, which aim to provide yield-hungry investors with attractive income streams. Discover the BetaShares range of ETFs and how simple they can be to invest in by going to betashares.com.au. Read the relevant PDFs and TMD on the website and consider if the fund is right for you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a podcast by The Rask Group. It's for educational purposes only. So please do not make a financial, legal, investment or taxation decision based on solely what you hear in this show. Welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. We're on a mission to be Australia's most trusted property podcast. I'm Owen Rask, founder of The Rask Group. I'm Pete Wardgen, author and buyer's agent. I'm Amy Lenardi, and I am a buyer's agent. I'm Chris Bates, ex-financial planner and mortgage broker. Together, we'll take you through every step of your property journey. From first home buyer to decades of property investing. G'day, welcome to the Two Cents episode of the Australian Property Podcast. I'm Pete Wargent and I'm here with Chris Bates. Batesy, how are you? Life's good, Pete. Uh, week two back at work and um, can't remember the holiday now. So it's uh, been a pretty full-on start to the year. How's, it, how's things going for you? It's a, a winning day for Spurs and Liverpool today, so we should be very happy on the podcast. Plus the inflation figures were actually pretty good this week, so I guess... All in all, life's pretty good. I've got a week in Dubai ahead and then back to Australia. So, uh, yeah, can't complain too much, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we kind of delayed this morning's podcast so I could finish the Liverpool game. So uh, <laughs> thanks for that, Pete. Um, but, uh, yeah, absolutely. I think the inflation figures, are, you know, I just think it's that the sentiment has shifted. We said about this a few months ago that, you know, uh, over months can be a long time for sentiment to shift. And, um, you know, the more and more positive news that comes around inflation, the conversation is getting more and more intensifying, I guess, around rate cuts and when they're coming and, you know, they're starting to look earlier than expected. And, um, yeah, once they start coming, the, the sentiment will start to shift again. Indeed. So we've got three uh, top stories of the week to cover off today. Firstly, we'll take a look at those inflation figures, which have been all over the media this week. Uh, secondly, a lot of talk about tax reform. Uh, which can be a bit of a dry subject, but it won't be with us, Chris, will it? So uh, we'll talk a bit about the political cycle. What comes next for Labour? I guess um, they've uh, had some controversy with the stage three tax cuts and now people are talking, okay, but what comes next? I guess there's uh, the progressive side of politics. They're going to take a look at various uh, tax reforms. So we'll have a look at that and what it means for the housing market. And then thirdly, uh, a couple of pieces in the fin review this week with Nyla Sweeney taking a look at Ray White research in terms of 
which parts of the housing market have really outperformed. Uh, quite often, it seems the premium end of the market has done very well over the past decade. There's also some figures on uh, suburbs where unit prices have tripled over 20 years. But I think in some cases, we'll take a drill down into the data because I think sometimes those figures can get skewed by new build apartments, uh, pushing up the medians and so on. So we'll, we'll sort of have a look at that and put our own sort of take on it. So yeah, let's start with those inflation figures, Chris, because I guess that was the, the main sort of big news story this week, uh, not just for the housing market, just for the economy in general and consumers. So inflation was 0.6% in the December quarter. So that's way better than market forecasts. Um, so there was still some inflation in um, tobacco excise, um, insurance costs, which we all know have been painful, uh, new dwelling costs still rising, uh, rents were up, but not quite so much, I guess, because of the Commonwealth rent assistance and electricity costs were still up, which I think will calm down a bit as the year goes on. So look, over the year, 4.1%, which is a lot better than expected. It was better than the Reserve Bank was forecasting, so that's really good. And there's probably more global disinflation to come with uh, lower energy costs and so on. And they also look at these um, uh, the core measures of inflation as well. So uh, 0.8% for trimmed mean inflation. And actually, if you if you look at uh, to a couple of decimal points, it was pretty much back to the target. So I guess this is, um, you never quite know, do you, Chris, with these uh, releases? Uh, there's a lot of um, uh, parts to the machine and you never know what's going to get spat out. But it was lower than expected, I guess, which is fantastic news for the central bank and probably a big sigh of relief for a lot of consumers as well. Yeah, and I guess I'm going to put you on the spot, Pete, but I mean, globally, we're a bit behind everyone, right? I mean, the if you go globally, the story is even much more positive than here. Is the inflation genie back in the bottle? I think that, you know, that's the one that you don't want to, to get out because it can become this inflation spiral. But are we going to navigate this inflation back in the bottle and get this soft landing? I mean, it, it seems like that could be the situation we're, we're heading towards. Um, What's your take on the world and where we're sitting? It does seem to be. I think uh, you're right. Australia and to some degree Japan are running on a slightly different cycle, largely because we had the borders basically shut for months and months while the rest of the world was reopened, like in Europe and parts of the US. They got back to normal much sooner. Uh, so you, you're right. We're further behind on the journey. Um, I think, um, yeah, we're basically following the rest of the world down for inflation in the same way that we followed it up. I think if you drill into the inflation numbers if you look at um the the split between tradables inflation and non-tradables in other words uh inflation is driven by global trends versus what's happening domestically well the global disinflation pulse is massive uh, inflation there is already down to 1.5 percent and it's absolutely plummeting there's there's more to come there as well i think um yes domestically we have got some inflation sticking around and it's in things like you know, services, insurance, and uh, those kind of um, parts of the economy. But that's exactly what you said, right? People see the opportunity to bump up prices, and they do, and that's why it can stick around. But the global disinflationary trend has really helped us. Um, I think if you're looking at uh, the other side of the equation, what could throw a spanner in the works is basically conflict. If the if uh, conflicts flare up and um, around, say, the Red Sea and oil yep. price suddenly spikes from 80 to 200 or something like that, That that's when the shit could really hit the fan, um, not just from a global perspective, but also from an inflation perspective. But, yeah, look at, if you look at what markets are pricing, um, Australia's three-year bond yield 
three and a half percent you know it was four and a half it's really mm. really come down over the past six months um if you look at the uh the cash rate well it's now 4.35 percent, which is higher than the rate of inflation uh now for the first time in quite a long time but if you look at our markets are pricing an interest rate cut in may is basically 50 50 um two cuts priced in by the end of the year and if you look out to june 2025 three and a half percent so I think, yes, it, whether it happens sooner or later, not really clear. But for sentiment, the fact that people are even talking about rates coming down instead of going up is a huge shift in uh, even from three months ago where people were still talking about the need for hikes. Yeah, and I think the you know the issue we sort of could see that if rates went higher than people expected, which I say they did, you know, people weren't expecting rates to go from zero to 4.35%. Um, but how long do they stick around there? And, you know, how long does it all the savings starts to really run out, all the buffers, all asking family for help, you know, um, you know, using any uh, refinancing loans, et cetera. And, you know, saving rates have been dwindling, right? And But we haven't seen arrears rates tick up. And I think... Now people are going to be saying, well, if rate cuts are coming, what I just need to do is navigate myself to the other side. The positive around rate cuts is not just sentiment. People want to get ahead of it. I want to buy because I know that as rates go down, the, the, the attraction towards um, entering the property market increases. You know, the desirability, the, the appetite for debt will increase because it's cheaper. Um, I want to get ahead of that. Um, plus, I'm in a rental crisis. Plus, I know um, I should have upgraded three or four years ago. So I'm in a you know, I'm got already running out of space in my apartment or my smaller house. Um, so, uh, yeah, and investors will start entering more and more because investors will go, well, my cash flow is going to get better. I know it's a bit more expensive now, but if I can hold on for a few years and rates come back down, then that negative cash flow is going to reduce and potentially rents are going to go up as well. So, um, yeah, I think uh, a lot of people who are potentially running out of savings right now are going to say, right, if I can just get through this window, you know, next six to 12 months, um, and, and refinancing is becoming easier, um, A, because incomes are going up, but, you know, banks are quite happy to lend. You know, there's been a lot of innovation around lower assessment rates, et cetera. Um, and uh, as rate cuts come, that means borrowing capacities go back up. So there's going to come this time where, you know, the people who are struggling, who haven't been able to refinance, maybe they took on a lot of debt pre, you know, in 2021. They didn't get those wage increases that they were hoping, but all of a sudden they're starting to come through now and the borrowing capacity is back and they can finally re, uh, refinance because what would be holding them back is if the property values didn't go up. But as we can see, we're almost back at, you know, 2021 highs again, if not higher in some suburbs. And so, you know, uh, potentially the asset value has actually gone up um, and they've paid their mortgage down and potentially they could refinance um, no issues under 80%. So, yeah, we, maybe with, there's a sort of that slim line to a soft landing. I think that's almost happening right now. Um, like you say, though, we never know with a black swan event like a, you know, a crisis in the Red Sea. You're right. I was interested to see um, in the Reserve Bank's financial aggregates that investor credit growth, so uh, growth in um, lending essentially to housing market investors, it's been very, very low now. Uh, it's been under 3% year on year for the past six months and it's even it was slowing through october slowing through november and further in december now that's a net figure so some people are selling some are buying so that would account for the rental crisis but i think the thing that is really interesting because you identified a week or two ago we're now into february 
And I'm seeing an awful lot, a lot of parents saying, look, I was planning uh, to pass on uh, this money to my kids um, in you know, Sydney or Melbourne or wherever it may be, and that was going to be their inheritance. But the rental market is an absolute disaster, and I'm just going to help them buy. And um, I've spoken to, by I mean, so we're uh, absolutely been flat out in Brisbane as buyers agents. But I've spoken to buyers agents in Melbourne, including Amy, um, who's on the podcast with us, and she suddenly got flat out busy. Um, I've spoken to other buyers agents in Melbourne and Sydney, flat out. Perth is flat out. Um, so I think, yeah, there's a couple of things. Obviously, there's a dearth of stock. There's definitely an intergenerational wealth transfer now happening. I, that was one of those things. I've sort of read the themes and all this, but now I'm seeing it firsthand. But parents are saying, well, there's no point in having my kids on the, the rental market with rents going up. There's no good properties around to rent. And I'd rather see them buy. And the uh, with prices rising, that's definitely happening. Um, so I guess, um, yeah, the rental crisis, I mean, the inflation figures for rent seem to cool off this quarter, but that was actually because of the rent assistance, not because the rental market crisis has been fixed. Um, so yeah, lots going on there. And um, I think, as you said, um, probably we'll start to see some investors coming back in 2024 as well. Yeah, there's always a pent up demand in the property market. If we, you know, if everyone was all living, everyone was living in the homes that they would want to live in. Um, if our owner occupier rate was, you know, well over 70, 80%, right? And um, there was always choice and you could just upgrade when the, the time was right and stamp duty didn't exist. And yeah, there'd be this really efficient market, but that's just not the way that the property market works. You know, you've got a lot of spare bedrooms with the, the downsizers and the baby boomers. You've got enough, not enough bedrooms for the younger families. You've got, um, etc. So there's this imbalance and there's this, always this pent up demand of people who would love to buy are in the rental market. Um, and I think there's a lot of uh, buyers that naturally and, you know, rightly so are a little bit cautious on entering. And, um, it's a, you know, it's a big thing. They're going to lose all their savings. They're going to have to go into a lot of debt versus renting. Um, but ultimately, they do want to do it. And, you know, sometimes they get burnt in 2017. They get burnt in 2019. They get burnt in 2021. Um where they're trying to enter and then it just becomes all too hard and, you know, they just don't enter. But they still have that desire to buy, you know. And uh, we, we've, even in the last couple of weeks, a lot of pre-approvals over the last two years, you know, have come back at the start of this year and going, no, this is our year. We're we absolutely going to make it happen this year. And I think that's what uh, – they're some of the buyers that really do drive prices because they've gone through that experience before where they've missed out by – if they didn't spend that extra 10000 they would have got in and then they never got in, right? And they've seen how that just not paying that 10000 has cost them a lot of money. Um, and I reckon they're coming back into the marketplace right now and they're looking at things quite um, subjectively, I guess. They're, they're saying, look, you know, if I buy now, I can buy at this point, I can buy this place. Uh, but if I wait 6 to 12 months for that pay rise or rate cuts, I'm going to, yes, I could spend maybe an extra 10, 15%. But am I going to have to pay 10 per 15% more? I can't afford to take that gamble. Um, and so I reckon that's what we've noticed just coming in the last week or two where those pre-approvals or people who wanted to buy over the last couple of boom cycles are coming back with a bit of a vengeance. And um, yeah, they're strong buyers. They're, they're, you know, they've they've played the game before. Maybe they haven't actually, you know, got the result, but they know what they're doing now. And when the right property comes up, they're very uh, keen to take action. And that's that's 
what drives prices. When properties move faster than expected, there's that FOMO feeling starts to happen. And, you know, just chatting to some agents, chatting to some buyers agents like you, Pete, after being away, um, we are seeing that there's a there's an urgency there. Um, this isn't to say that we're going to see huge boom numbers, but I do think there's enough buyers and ultimately listings are going to stay low. There's always this false belief that all of a sudden everyone's going to rush to sell and, you know, listings come after real price growth. And um, so uh, I don't, and I think that's going to come when borrowing capacities go up, to be honest. And, uh, and, and there's real confidence around rates. Um, that's when people are going to be able to transact. And so I reckon it's going to be a pretty disappointing autumn again with quality listings um, still very dire and uh, it's going to be tough buying. You're right. If, if, if that's you um, as a first home buyer or somebody who's uh, suffering a bit of FOMO, you, you really need to do your market research, make sure you don't overpay, but spend a bit of time on your brief. Work out what are the must-haves, what are the nice-to-haves, what are the must-avoids, get really clear on what you're looking to buy. And when the right thing comes along, then you can be decisive. Uh, because, yeah, you're right. I think it'll be a competitive buying environment over the next uh, 6, 12 months. So I guess just, as you said, there's a lot of people been on the sidelines, weren't quite clear what was coming. But now it looks like interest rates have clearly peaked and therefore that's going to bring more people back into the market. And, yeah, there's just not that many forced sellers because people are now thinking, right, I'm going to hang on here. I'm going to see it through. We know mortgage arrears have stayed low. And if people can see light at the end of the tunnel, they're more likely um, to hold on, I guess, until interest rates start coming back down. Now, you mentioned their borrowing capacities, Chris. That's our second story, or at least uh, obliquely related, uh, tax reforms and the political cycle. So Labour Party has lost a little bit of uh, popularity after uh, backflipping on the stage three income tax cuts that were previously promised and i guess it is well it'll be popular with some voters at the lower end of the income earning scale because actually uh, some earners will get a better tax cut than expected but it's really the people at 150k upwards who are expecting a nice 9k cut in their uh, income tax or at least at the top rate uh, people are expecting about 9000 they're probably going to get four and a half or thereabouts um so there's some uh, People are a little bit uh, pissed off, I guess, um, that, that sort of backflip. Um, so there's some talk about what comes next, I suppose, for the, the Labour Party. Now, we do know in Australia, we do tax income very highly. Uh, I mentioned I've got a week in Dubai coming up, but there's no income tax, very different setup there. But in Australia, we've seen uh, the tax to income ratio has more or less gone from about 12% at the time of the financial crisis. Uh, or To be fair, it was more like 15% pre-GFC. It's got all the way up to 19. And the tax cuts will take us back down a bit to 18. But really with bracket creep, we do actually deserve some tax cuts, I would argue anyway. Uh, But uh, where is Labour looking next? Fin Review says ALP may be looking at a 60 billion reform uh, to tax family trusts because I guess in the current environment, as you said, a lot of those higher income earners will now be thinking, right, how can I reduce my taxable income? And family trust is one of the ways. And that, that's probably politically quite popular. I guess the polls are now nearer 50-50 <laughs> for the, the leading parties. Um, so some talk about negative gearing and franking credits, but Labour have said after the last time or the last term's debacle, they're not going to take a look at that anytime soon. Yeah, and I think um, I feel I'm getting old, Pete. I think um, you know you count all the elections and all the years that you sort of track things, and um, 
yeah, you start to feel like there's this big history of knowledge that you're building and, uh, you know, and how fast times moves, right? So I think the election's got to be before September next year or something. Um, and so what well, we're in February now, all of a sudden it's the middle of this year and then bang, we're talking about, you know, the, the run-up to the election, right? And Are they too like- short, do you reckon? Are these cycles, you know, three-year political cycles? It feels like you've only just got the last one out of the way and people are starting <laughs> to eye off the next election. Wouldn't four years be the right kind of term? If it, I mean, look, I'm not a politics person, but it feels to me like we have way too many elections and too often. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, coming from a financial planning background, I'm always thinking 10, 20, 30, 40 years and three years just feels like, you know, tomorrow to me. But in saying that, I was chatting to a client yesterday and, um, you know, they were basically making plans for the next 12 months. Um, you know, I think we could, you know, we're just thinking this is what we're going to do for the next 12 months. They, they just both of them uh, were very short term in their thinking. And um, not to say there's nothing wrong with that. That's like living in the present and, um, you know, taking life as it comes. Um, there's a lot to be said about that. But, you know, I do think that, you know, when you look at some of the, I, you know, I really love how the companies that have those 60-year visions or the 100-year, I think it's Japanese sort of or the Chinese mm-hmm. philosophy where it's these mega trends and, you know, you're really planning long term. Um, that's what my mindset is. But, yeah, these elections come around really fast. And I don't know, are you are you just going to go for the easy route? You're not going to want to upset too many voters. The negative gearing, capital gains tax, I think, that's really hard to argue in a in a rental crisis um, because changing those are anti-investor, which is anti-investment, um, which is what we need for a rental crisis. So I would say that, um, yeah, there's a housing price, prices are going up, but that's, you know, you'd hard to argue that uh, the investors are causing that because we do need rentals uh, and investor growth really little, right? You already just mentioned that, how um, that's not driving the prices. And so I don't know, there's always going to be, there's a big cha- tax changes to super. Um, and that is already upsetting a lot of people. And probably the people who are doing the super are also probably they're going to be targeting with the trusts. Um, and so getting these super changes through, I think that's a that's a big thing to get through, let alone trying to make uh, an attack on trusts. Yeah, I agree with that. I, um, I, I definitely, I've always tended to be associated with the idea of the long-term view because I guess once I learned about compound interest and compound growth and uh, even going back to school, you remember the old Casio calculators and hitting the multiply sign. And so I've I've always tended to try and think very long-term as an investor. Um, But I suppose the the flip side to that, you know, the the old John Maynard Keynes quote about in the long run, we're all dead. And I I suppose... um, yeah, the, the the flip side to the, the sort of 100-year business plan idea in Japan, well, look at a business like, I don't know, Kodak or something, which uh, or Eastman Kodak as it once was, and you know, things change over very long periods of time. And um, you know, even the very successful businesses can um, see the business model change, like, I don't know, Blockbuster Video and HMV and all of those companies. So, yeah, look, um, I suppose there's, there's a macro and a micro element to this. Um, I think um, so. There was just over the past uh, week or so that uh, the Treasury released its tax expenditures and insights statement, and the the Fin Review picked the eyes out of that and said, "Look, um, Treasury's just scrutinising family trusts a bit more. Sixty billion uh, of income going through uh, tax-friendly trust vehicles. That's one point seven million people. So about eleven percent of taxpayers have trust income in twenty twenty one tax year. And that's up about." 200,000 to 1.7 million. So that's one area that I suppose might get a look in. Uh, I think it would be 
pretty typical of the you know, labor side of politics to take a look at family trusts and i think as well you know people will be trying to bring down that marginal tax rate if we're paying tax at 47 percent and we're not getting the tax cuts more people will look at trusts um i guess there's a, a question here chris for people who invest in property about the whether to invest in your own name whether to invest in a trust i mean this is really uh, a case by case basis, but quite a lot of property investors do use trust, particularly people who need the asset protection. Yeah, absolutely. I think they, uh, you just got to be really careful. You know, you just want to make sure that you are getting a benefit there. There are negatives to, you know, how you can offset losses and, you know, capital gains tax and et cetera. So be really careful. You, you know, you really understand the value versus buying different structures. Uh, you know, we've even seen some, you know, some of our self employed clients buying their companies, you know. Um, because it's better to you know keep growing the assets in there than to distribute it to themselves personally and pay a big lump sum of income tax. And so, absolutely, you know, when when the tax rules are changing, change the incentive, change the behaviour. Uh, very famous quote. I think Charlie Munger, who's no longer with us, um, said that. So, oh, maybe maybe it was his uh, good friend Warren, but I'm not sure. But um, one yeah, of those. I think, yeah, <laughs> yeah, one of those two Goliaths. Um, but ultimately, I think you know you've, we've got to expect that there's going to be a lot of attack on inequality um, because it is getting worse, right? Absolutely, there's these haves and have-nots, and it's getting absolutely amplified right now. Um, it's a real, uh, if you've got money that can come down the line, and there is a lot, a lot of money. I'm not in this camp, just to be clear. Um, I haven't got millions coming down from inheritance. Um, I'll probably get very little, if anything, at all. But um, there is a lot of money. If you think about the property market, let's say it's worth $10 trillion, it's worth 11 or 12 trillion in a couple of years' time, right? Um, wouldn't be too much of a stretch. Um, the, the debt market, the debt isn't going to grow that fast, right? So if the property market goes from 10 to 12 trillion, um, debt isn't going to go from two and a half trillion to four trillion. It might go from two and a half to three trillion. That would even be a big jump um, in terms of credit growth. So uh, that means that there's nine trillion dollars of equity in the Australian property market that is owned at not proportionally and i uh, even just last week i know we spoke about this last week but there's a client whose parents have downsized from a you know a very expensive property in sydney and they passed a huge inheritance down to two of their kids and they downsized up the coast um and you know it's just because the parents go it's a good time for me to sell um it's a good time for me to buy up the coast not as, you know it's not as competitive as it was um and uh yeah and it's a really good chance to help the kids under higher interest rates um to a pay off their mortgages or to get them into the market and so i think that's definitely what a lot of people are thinking at that generation indeed and in fact uh yes i'm unfortunately yeah like yourself um not due an inheritance uh, coming my way but uh, i guess um you know, that can keep you hungry and keen to invest but is it you've actually very nicely segued chris into our third story which is where prices have outperformed and a couple of pieces from Nyla Sweeney and the Fin Review, Ray White research are basically showing that it's the luxury homes that have outperformed over the past decade. So if you looked at some of the locations, uh, I think uh, people in Brisbane wouldn't be too surprised. Uh, New Farm, Paddington, Kenmore, those kind of luxury homes where prices have really gone bananas. It, it's not just houses either, Chris. I remember all those years ago when the first time a unit sold for a million dollars in Sydney and it made all the headlines, you know, Sydney Morning Herald and stuff. And, you know, this week I was just flicking through the news and 
somebody bought an off the plan place of the Gold Coast, six and a half mil, you know. And I think a lot of that is driven by intergenerational wealth. And um, Australia doesn't have the big inheritance taxes that you see in mm. Europe. And um, yeah, and it's, it's wealth being passed down. Um, Sydney's eastern suburbs and inner west obviously featured as well. And in terms of where units outperformed, it was, again, premium units uh, in Sydney, Bronte, Tamarama, Bellevue Hill, kind of the places you'd expect. But um, so homes in the top 5% of the market basically doubled over the past decade. Luxury houses increased by up to 38 percentage points faster than median priced houses. And for units, the differential was 55 percentage points. So yeah, it's, it's, um, I guess goes back to your point, Chris. There's an inequality aspect to this because you have the haves who are getting the intergenerational wealth and inheritances and the have-nots who have to work your way up um, in a tough housing market environment. But it does seem to be housing is a big part of that inequality story. Yeah, I mean, I'd be a bit upset if this article was saying the opposite, to be honest, because, um, you know, I've kind of been saying this story since I very early started talking about property back in 2012 um, and, and was getting educated when I joined a financial advice property, you know, mortgage broking business. I didn't really know too much about property prior to that, to be fair. Um, and, you know, I quickly sort of try to learn, speaking to lots of buyers, agents, looking at what performed for clients. And you could very easily see that, you know, the things that are scarce, the things that are highly desirable to people who are earning a lot of money plus um, who have got money um, aren't turnovering them, aren't you know, transacting as much, there's less of them available, they're really hard to buy um, and people are treating them like forever homes. They're tightly held suburbs. People live in them for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, these properties. And so, um, you know, when we had clients, you know, we all the way back to say 2016, maybe even 15 Pete. we we did quite a lot of work with a lot of clients actually um and you know they bought in those suburbs that we're listing here you know the paddingtons the bardens new farm balmoral graceville um and you know looking at how those clients as properties are performed compared to the brisbane medians um in houses it's chalk and cheese and even these articles that show um our performance they don't actually even then show the next level which is the suburbs within a the properties within a suburb that outperform that suburb, um, and they can massively outperform those numbers as well because people that pay a massive premium to be on the better streets, the better aspects, the better blocks, the better locations, you know, to schools, to you know, accessibility of the suburb, etc. And so, yeah, the units are really big one. I mean, I had a client this week, um, you know, which is fair enough. Melbourne couple, um, you know, got family in Sydney, but, you know, not should we buy a house in Melbourne or should we buy, an, uh, you know, something in Sydney? And, you know, they had a belief that, you know, well, I don't want to buy a unit, I want to buy a house, I want to buy land. And, you know, that's a pretty good belief when you think about long-term growth of houses over apartments. And that's definitely the case in Sydney and, and Brisbane. Um, you know, the housing market gap is, is quite huge. Um, but when you look at the premium apartments, the bigger you know, Art Decos, they've been around 40, 60 years. They're, uh, they're bigger, they're sunroof, they've got high ceilings, they're in small blocks of, you know, 6 to 12. They're in um, surrounded by houses. They're, you know, got parking. they maybe got a view. Um, and they really suit, you know, young couples in the past and maybe more downsizers, but now they really suit the family market. Um I would say these apartments have, you know, are, are a great bet because they're not building any more apartments in these areas at this price point. They're usually a good 50% more than what the new, the current apartments are selling at. So, 
if you think about the premium suburbs there, you know, maybe the apartments are selling circa 1.5 to 2, maybe. Um, but new apartments are selling three, four, five mil because they're really suiting that cashed up downsize their rent. Um, yeah, and they've got strict planning controls. They will do slight changes, you know. Uh, Bondi's changing dramatically, you know, compared to what it was, say, 10 years ago. But there's just they can't keep up with the demand in these areas. They're just not going to change the city, that their location that much. So, yeah, it's uh, a lot of people on uh, socials that say, oh, don't buy in Sydney. And they would have been saying don't buy in Sydney all the way over the last, you know, seven to 10 years. Um, particularly if you go back 10 years, 20 23, 2024, we're good, you know, into a Sydney boom there. Um, and you can see here that, you know, those anti, you know, higher, you know, cost properties, um, you know, can't argue with these stats over the last decade. You can't. I think, um, I suppose the one caveat that we've probably both got here with the the data, um, well, let's step through it. Premium houses in inner Brisbane, inner west, inner east, inner north. Fastest great rate of growth nationwide. Yeah, no arguments there. Spring Hill, New Farm, Paddington. Brisbane's in the West, 230% over a decade. Yeah, we've seen that firsthand. Ditto, Leichhardt, Pitwater in Sydney, and the premium market in Sydney, Vaucluse, Rose Bay, Darling Point, Point Piper, over 200% growth. All agreed. Top-tier apartments in Sydney, Double Bay, Bellevue Hill, Bronte and Tama. Um, more than uh, triple top tier apartments. Yeah, that's all true, and I, I think we we can say we can we've seen examples of that kind of thing. I think um, you mentioned as well there, Sydney's got the biggest value differential between houses and units. It's um, a premium of sixty eight percent, according to CoreLogic, uh, Tim Lawler. So there's definitely I think potential for units in Sydney to do really well over the next decade I think the the, the one caveat I've got here Chris of the data suburbs where unit values have tripled over 20 years um Erskineville top of the tree there 249 percent over 20 years I'm going to call BS on this because I yeah. actually own a unit in Erskineville and I think this is where sometimes you've got to drill down a bit basically what you've got is a suburb where there weren't many apartments then there were loads of new apartments, and that has that has drilled the median price higher. But it, it, you've really got to look at like for like sales. That's the true capital growth that is is experienced by the investor. Much as I would love to say I've had two hundred and fifty percent capital growth, it's been less than that, and that's where sometimes the the numbers can get skewed a bit at the suburb level, where you get lots of new properties, same in Alexandria, Redfern, and places like that. So I think, as you said. And as you said last week, in fact, the unit market, there's there's different parts to that. There's the investor stock, big high-rise towers where, yeah, very sort of generic capital growth, but it's, you know, generic properties, essentially. The stuff that has done well, and you can see that in the stats, really, is um, the areas with three-story high, li high limits, limitations on supply, blue chip areas in Sydney, in the eastern suburbs, you know, and that's where there's an affordability challenge, but also... As you said, um, if you've got a property that's got a point of scarcity, that maybe it's family appropriate, it's got some outdoor space, nice aspect, those are the kind of assets that have done well, not so much the generic stuff that just sells to landlords, I guess. Yeah, I mean, whenever I see these uh, reports or this is what uh, certain suburbs have been performing, um, 
you know, a good friend, Kent Lardner. Uh, he is, uh, you know, years of chatting to him um, very regularly. Uh, we always laugh because we can pull to pieces those uh, lists very easily with, like you say, stories of why they're showing which aren't true, you know. And often they, they like you say, it's the median shifted because before there was, very cheap housing there. Oh, there wasn't many houses in that suburb, but now there's, you know, farms of houses. And, you know, uh, that's pushed up the median because there's lots of houses selling, uh, you know, house and land packages now. Or the same with apartments. There wasn't many apartments now. Now there's heaps of apartments that are getting built and that pushes the median. It doesn't mean the apartments in that suburb have gone up um, to those levels. Uh, it, it's just the, the median shifted because of new stock and there's lots of different, um, you know, quirks to numbers and, you know, I don't say that it's the AFR's fault or Isla's fault for doing that because, you know, you do need to go in detail and rule suburbs out and, you know, it's much easier just to print the list um, rather than, you know, dissect it. And that's what I think when you, you know, been around the traps for a while, you start to see these issues that, um, you know, aren't really the truth, uh, but they look great on paper. And I think that's the, the average punter doesn't know that. And so in this situation, they go, wow, Erskineville units are the best performing. Maybe even the agents in the suburb will use it. That's even more frustrating um, <laughs> when they use the AFR article and to sell more apartments, which wouldn't surprise me. Um, and so, but yeah, you just got to be really careful because those that's definitely BS. Still think if something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Price performance has been absolutely fine, but it hasn't been 250%. And I think uh, particularly at the suburb level, we used to see this in the old property magazines. You know, if, it, if half a dozen properties have sold this year versus last year, but they were more expensive houses or, you know, places with ocean views. Yeah, of course, the median has changed for the types of properties that have actually sold. But there's only really one way to measure and that's just a like-for-like like sale over a given point of time. And, yeah, often those are really big numbers are not actually reflective of the individual experience. But uh, macro to micro, I guess that's what you've always uh, preached, Chris, and uh, you've got to look at uh, picking out those uh, top-performing assets. So I guess look, those are the key three stories this week. Uh, big turning point then, inflation fell more than expected, more than economists expected, but in particular more than the RBA is forecast. So that's... A big change for the dynamic, the narrative, and I think, I think the housing perma bear, you know, uh, sort of bear case has kind of been shot down a bit by that. I do think there's still parts of the country where mortgage rates are really causing some serious pain. I think you mentioned savings rates. I was chatting to Amy this week, and <laughs> we were saying, what are the stats here? Well, the savings rate in Australia has gone from 24% during the COVID period back to 1%, and it's going to go negative. So. Based on that, there's clearly parts of the country and pockets where people are really under mortgage stress, but light at the end of the tunnel with some rate cuts probably priced in later in the year. Uh, tax reforms, yeah, we, we pay way too much income tax in Australia, um, higher than we used to pay from a tax-to-income ratio. So where that goes next as the political cycle turns, certainly Labour will be looking at tackling that inequality issue and family trusts might get a look in. There'll probably be some other reforms on the table as well. And then thirdly, uh, suburbs where premium houses of units and units have outperformed. Yeah, not too many surprises there. And um, I guess, yeah, it's an ongoing challenge, isn't it? That top end of the market, not really impacted by things like interest rates and tax cuts, much more by intergenerational wealth or business wealth and um yeah some big outperformance of the the top five percent of properties chris 
And you made a really good point there, Pete, around actually looking at actual properties and past sales. And um, I think this is when the light bulb moment was for me. I remember back in 2013, 14, and uh, I just realized there's a big education gap and I had access to RP data, which I didn't even know what it was. Um, and, you know, and anyone can get access to RP data or there's lots of, you know, property data is you know, much easier to get access and cheaper now than it ever has been. And so you can actually go through and compare, okay, what did that apartment sell for? What does it sell for now? What did the house in that suburb sell for 20, 30 years ago? You know, what did these older apartments sell for? You know, and, you know, and really just sort of, you know, you know, there's the stats, the numbers are the numbers. And yeah, those number, those sales might have been either a bit of a forced sale at that point or, you know, a potentially great uh, sale price because it was in a boom and those numbers can get moved a little bit just because of the timing. Um, but ultimately, the trend's not. And you can see that things absolutely do underperform and things that um, have outperformed. And then you can start to look at the reasons why. And so I, I absolutely recommend that for people is to, you know, rather than just, you know, look at the, the big suburb data, actually, no, 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 where in this suburb can I look at some past sales? Oh, that property just sold last weekend. Okay, when did it sell before that? When did it sell before that? Um, and, and you'll start to get a real good gist of what's happening within that suburb and where the locals really want to be. Great chat, Pete. It's another big episode um, and so good to be back doing these every week with you. Too right, yes. If you look at those uh, property figures, yeah, and sometimes you can see, you know, the price has gone up. Yes, because someone's done a massive renovation. You know, yeah, and mm. also uh, sometimes you get part sales and the figures look look wrong. You try and use a bit of a common sense override when you're doing that Absolutely. stuff, because uh, you do get some outliers or sometimes fat fingers where uh, an extra zero gets priced uh, on the property sale. So yeah, just uh, use a bit of common sense when you're doing that kind of stuff. So yeah, you know where to find us. Chris is at Blusk for all your mortgage broking needs, and if you're interested in a property strategy and buyer's agency you can get hold of us at alan wargent or you can track me down easily enough online at my daily blog um so that's it chris enjoy the rest of your weekend and look forward to chatting next week absolutely happy sunday everyone thanks for listening cheers Thanks for tuning in to the Australian Property Podcast. If you love the show, why not subscribe or leave us a review on Apple or Spotify? And if you want to work with me, Amy, Pete or Chris, you'll find links in your podcast player to get in contact with us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Australian Property Podcast. We're huge advocates of getting the right advice at the right time from the right people. That's why it's important to understand that this podcast episode contained general financial information only. It is not designed to be specific or personalized to your financial, tax or legal situation. With property, the check sizes are pretty big, so it's important you get advice from a licensed and trusted professional before acting on the information you hear in RAS podcasts. Thanks again for listening. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service. 
Designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.